Good news. Good news. We all love to hear good news. You like to hear good news? Everybody like to hear good news? You passed the test. You're going to graduate, or you got an A on the exam. You got the job. You sold your home at full price, or they accepted your offer. Your bills are all paid. Okay? You're debt free. Good news, good news. Or you go to the doctor and he says you've got a clean bill of health. You're in great shape. Or your parents and you find out your kids arrived home safely or they arrived to their destination. It's all good news. We love to hear good news. Good news. Well, the best news, the goodest news or the best news of all time is found in the Bible. Found in the Bible. The writers call this good news the gospel, which comes from the Greek word meaning good news. Makes sense. Now, we have nearly completed our series on 1 Corinthians. I know you, some of you are saying we're still through. We got this Sunday and next Sunday in 1 Corinthians. And the, the writer of 1 Corinthians, Paul, has answered a lot of questions. He's dealt with a lot of difficult issues. We've talked about some really difficult issues this year. He's taught the church how to celebrate diversity and how to maintain unity. And he finishes this book with good news. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now next week we're going to take time to look at specifically just the resurrection. But today we're going to talk about good news. What exactly is this good news? And I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, it's on page 933 in the Bible in the rack in front of you. If you want to follow there, it's on the projection as well. 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to look at the first 11 verses this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, number 1, verse 1. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on what you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was within me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. Good news. What is this good news? First of all, it's that Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. Now, it's not popular today to talk about anybody's death. We see accounts on a daily basis about the death of someone, and we like to avoid talking about death or thinking about death. And it was no different in the first century. Especially scandalous was to talk about death by crucifixion. Crucifixion. 
John Stott says, Crucifixion seems to have been invented by barbarians on the edge of the known world and taken over from them by both the Greeks and the Romans. It is probably the most cruel method of execution ever practiced, for it deliberately delayed death until maximum torture had been inflicted. The victim could suffer for days before dying. Crucifixion. The Romans adopted crucifixion for criminals convicted of murder, rebellion, or armed robbery, provided they were also slaves, foreigners, or other non-persons. The Jews also regarded crucifixion with horror. They made no distinction between the cross and the tree, between hanging and crucifixion. And Deuteronomy 21.33 says, anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. This was a horrible thing to even talk about. Because of this distaste and revulsion of crucifixion, many in the first century could not imagine worshiping a dead man who had suffered such a humiliating and painful death, even though his followers claimed that he, Jesus, had been resurrected. People were repulsed by this news then, as many are repulsed about it today. How can the death of someone be called Good news. That's a great question. And Paul calls this death good news of first importance. It's the most important good news that we could ever have. Christ died for our sins. Why? Why was it necessary? Why would Jesus do such a thing? And what, what makes this so important is that God planned this in advance. It says it was according to scriptures. In other words, Jesus came with a predetermined function and a predetermined plan to die this crucifixion death, this terribly painful death. So what does Jesus' death mean to us? How in the world can this be good news? What did it accomplish? First of all, number one, Jesus died for us. It's personal. Jesus died for us. It's personal. It's personal. Jesus' death was not some abstract demonstration of love. It was not just an example for all mankind to emulate. Jesus' death was not an accidental or unintentional event. Jesus' death was intentional and purposeful for us. For us. In John 10, 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's us, for us. In John 10, 17 to 18, it says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my, love, my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Jesus laid down his life for us, his sheep. He chose to. It's personal. It's personal. It wasn't for, it's for our sake. It wasn't for him, it's for us. Secondly, Jesus died to bring us to God. Jesus died to bring us to God. It's reconciliation. It's reconciliation. Can you pull me down just, just a tad bit? There we go. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. The righteous, that was Jesus, 
died for the unrighteous, that's us, to bring us to God. Now, what, what is that all about? What, is, what does that mean? I am, I'm sure over your lifetime, you've had a serious disagreement or fight with someone. How many of you ever had a disagreement or fight with someone? Okay, my hand's up twice. Okay, yeah. Disagreement, fight, something. There's a schism in your relationship. Or someone did something really bad to you or betrayed you or wronged you in some way. All of us have experienced the alienation that occurs in the context of human relationships. We experience this in childhood, first of all, with siblings, typically, brothers and sisters. And if our parents are on top of it, they teach their children how to resolve conflicts, how to reconcile those broken relationships. And we do not, we cannot resolve conflicts by just pretending it didn't happen. That's the easy way, you know, as we had a fight, you just kind of pretend it didn't ever happen. Just hope it goes away. It, it never happens. We have to deal with the differences. We have to deal with the offense. The cause of conflict we have to deal with in order for us to go forward. My parents taught us how to say I'm sorry. Those are the two really hard words to say. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Or I forgive you. Those are three sentences that are not in our natural vocabulary. Okay? I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? I forgive you. That's how we remove an offense. We remove the cause of conflict, the break in a relationship. We deal with the action, the wrong action, and the, the offense. Well, by Jesus dying, he dealt with the issue, which was our offense or our sins. The purpose of Jesus' death is to reconcile us to God, to restore that relationship. That means it's good news, good news. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 19 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. He says, all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So the purpose of Jesus' death was to restore us to relationship with God. He removed the problem, removed the cause of the conflict. See, Jesus' actions brought us new life, a new start, eternal life, peace with God, no more conflict with God, open relationship, and reconciliation. Jesus died to bring us to God. Number three, Jesus died to pay for our sins. Part of how it all happened. Jesus died to pay for our sins. It's payment. It's payment. When we do something wrong, we need to pay for it. We steal something, we need to pay it back. You gossip and destroy your reputation, you need to make it right. You wreck someone else's car, you need to replace it or pay for the damage, whatever. Even our legal system has payment built into it. We can seek lawsuits or go to court for monetary damages. If there's manslaughter or murder, you go to prison or you may even pay with your life. And whether it's burglary or drug dealing, there's payment. If you speed, you pay the fine. It's very simple. We do the crime, we do the time. And God set up a payment system as well. In the Old Testament, I'm, I'm reading in my devotions, my Old Testament passage, I'm working my way through Leviticus. How many of you have read through Leviticus? It's hard slog. It's a hard slog. It's all this stuff. But it's God's system of the sacrificial system talks about that. And, and it's the sacrificing of animals and shedding of blood 
on the altar so that our, the sins could be forgiven. That was the payment system in the Old Testament. And, and the good news is that when Jesus came, he did it differently. That's recorded in the New Testament. In Hebrews 9.12, it says, He did not enter, this is into God's presence, by means of the blood of goats and calves, like the Old Testament, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. So we did the crime, and Jesus did the time. Jesus paid for it. Jesus paid. Hebrews 13, 11, 12 says, The high priest carries the blood of animals into the holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus suffered outside the city gate to make people holy through his own blood. Through his blood. Jesus died to pay for our sin. It's payment. It's payment. Number four, Jesus died in our place. It's substitution. Jesus died in our place. It's substitution. See, Jesus' death and our sins are linked together. We deserve to die. We did the wrong deeds. We committed the sins. And Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. Now, death was not part of God's original plan for the human race. Death is an alien intrusion into God's good world. Death. And death includes physical death, which all of us at some point will experience, separation from loved ones, family, and friends, separation from our earthly existence, but it also includes spiritual death, which is separation from relationship with God, the schism that was between us and God. Back in the Garden of Eden, God gave some, some commands to uh, Adam and Eve. In Genesis 2, 16 to 17, they said, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Well, we know how we are, and we know how kids are. What, do you do, what happens if you tell the kid, you can do all this and this, but you can't do that? What do they do? Yeah, that's right. So that's what they did. They ate of that tree. And he said, if you do that, you will surely die. Now, both types of death are seen throughout the Bible as divine judgment on human disobedience or sin. Okay, divine judgment, both physical death and spiritual death. 1 Peter 1.18 says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, lamb without blemish or defect. So Jesus died in our place. That's the good news. Good news. Jesus died for us. It's personal. Jesus died to bring us to God. That's reconciliation. Jesus died to pay for our sins. That's payment. Jesus died in our place. That's substitution. It's good news. Good news. Now, before we look at the second part of the good news, which is the resurrection, we're going to look at that next Sunday. I want to look at the responses to this part of the good news. How do people respond to this Good news. How will you respond today to this good news? Good news responses. Let's start with negative responses. Letter A. Negative responses. First negative response is unbelief. Unbelief. Some people just cannot bring themselves to believe all this good news and this death and resurrection, all these things that God did for us. Well, unbelief 
was the response to many during Jesus' life. Not everybody didn't believe in Jesus. There was a lot of unbelief to go around. And there was unbelief as a response following Jesus' death. In fact, unbelief was a very common response after Jesus was resurrected. You'd think that wouldn't be the case, but unbelief, unbelief. Faced with overwhelming firsthand eyewitness accounts of Jesus' divinity, many simply rejected the truth in unbelief. They said, I'm not going to believe. In fact, one of the most chilling things, I think, before the last days of Jesus on earth, he did this incredible miracle. He, he raised a guy from the dead that had been dead four days. Okay. I mean, he was in the grave, tomb, pronounced dead four days. His name was Lazarus. Raised him from the dead. And, and many people witnessed that incredible miracle. Many believed, and, and many people did believe. However, others, instead of believing, went to the religious leaders and said, we've got to do something about Jesus, now he's raising the dead. Are you serious? You've got to be kidding me. They refused to believe. They saw it in front of their eyes, and they refused to believe. And the great irony here, one of the great ironies, is that the author of 1 Corinthians, this book that we've been studying, the greatest apostle of the church, Paul, started as the most vehement opponent of Jesus. He was the most violent of unbelievers. Started in unbelief. Many people throughout history have started at the beginning in unbelief. Unbelief. Then after examining the facts, the truth ultimately came to believe. One of the most famous skeptics that, that I know of over the history was a man called C.S. Lewis. If you've never read any of C.S. Lewis, I challenge you to read some of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was a skeptic. He was an unbeliever. And he examined the evidence and he came to believe. He went on to write many books. Three of the most incredible are, the first one is Surprised by Joy. Surprised by Joy. That's the title of the book. It's a story of his journey to belief, from unbelief to belief. Then he wrote Mere Christianity, which is a, a major apologetic of the Christian faith. Helped a lot of people understand why we believe what we believe. Then he did the Tales of Narnia, a series of six books. There, there are a lot of things that he, that he wrote, but it really is amazing. He started out with unbelief. And maybe you're here this morning and that's your place, unbelief. That's okay. That's okay. That's where we all start. We all start with unbelief. Now the second, a second response is, number two, self-righteousness. You hear the good news and say, oh, I'm not so bad. I'm not so bad. Yeah, I made some mistakes, but you won't find me in jail or in trouble with the law. Actually, I'm pretty good when compared to everybody else. Therein lies the problem, compared to everyone else. See, we measure ourselves against the wrong standard. Wrong standard. Did you know that I could be the world's most incredible basketball player if I play against fifth graders on an eight-foot basket? I, I mean, I am awesome. I can dunk it. I, you know, there's some things. You won't believe what I can do against fifth graders. Or, or if you want to set a world record in the 100-yard meter, 100-meter dash, just shorten your race to 50 meters. Okay, you just change the standard. Awesome, isn't that great? Just change the standard. 
It's like all the students in Lake Wobegon that all the students are above average. How do they do that? Well, you lower the curve. You lower the standard. See, if you lower the standard, we can all excel. And sometimes we just say, I'm not bad. I compared to whatever. And so we lower the standard and we measure up great to compare to the, other, the others. Change a standard, you'll succeed. But, but the problem is God's standard is absolute, total perfection. Perfection. The measure of sin is not subjective, it's objective. In other words, we don't measure and kind of fudge and estimate whatever. No, it's objective. Sin in any amount, any amount of sin, violates God's character. And only people absent of any sin can measure up. The only ones measure up. In America, we like to think we're pretty good. We're pretty good. But God in the Bible begs to differ. He begs to differ. In Romans 3, 10 through 12, it says, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. This is speaking of our human nature and our propensity to evil. Our propensity to evil. And as long as we deny the bad news, we'll never see how good the good news is. We measure ourselves against criminals and MS-13 gang members and drug addicts and prostitutes and pimps, not against God or his standard. The reason the statement, Jesus died for our sins, means so little to so many is because many people have no concept of their own guilt and sinfulness before God. Self-righteousness. You may be here this morning and feel that way. Or you may identify with another group of people. Another group of people. The third negative response to the good news is number three is guilt. Guilt. These are people that are so guilt-ridden they cannot believe. They say, I'm too bad. God can never forgive my sins. You don't know what all I've done. There's no way God could ever forgive my sins. Weighed down with guilt and feeling somehow they have to pay for their sins. We don't. Jesus paid for our sins. We cannot pay the debt we never could, so Jesus paid for the sins. That is good news. Now, if anyone would have felt he was unforgivable, that would have been Paul, the guy who wrote this 1 Corinthians book. Verses 9 through 10. This is amazing. This guy who started in unbelief, did horrible things to other people, became a believer. And in verse 9 he says, For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But the grace... But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Grace is receiving what we don't deserve. Just simple. We, we don't deserve something, and it's, it's given to us. And I'm sure that Paul struggled with the same feelings, that, that you may 
wrestle with. Obviously he did, he put it in this book, an unforgivable past. How could God possibly accept me? How could God forgive me? How can he let me do anything in his ministry? How can he use me? What, all of those feelings that we have because of guilt. God, by his grace, forgives, forgives. The Bible doesn't say some have sinned. Some are worse than others. Or some have sinned and fall short of God's standards. It says all. All means all, okay? Just in case you're wondering, all. All have sinned. And it doesn't matter how short we all, we fall. We all fall short. We, whatever it is. If you can view a, a, a canyon, you want to jump from here to there. All of us have to jump from this side to that side. And if you don't make it across, if you fail to make it all the way across, you're going to fall to your death. That's what it means, certain death. Now, some people jump halfway, do fall to their death. Some people make it a little bit further. Some people make it almost all the way across the chasm, but they die, okay? Ultimately, everyone falls into the chasm to certain death. And some people approach the faith like that and say, if I can only do more or more or more, if I can only reach further across that chasm, then I can earn it. No, all fall short. We all fall short. Ultimately, everyone falls into the chasm. Some of us may have done more good deeds than others. We may have jumped further than someone else. But the bottom line is this. We all fall short. We all face certain death. None of us can measure up. Your sin, my sin, all sin, we all fall short. That's why Jesus died to bridge the chasm. The chasm. Now those are negative responses. There's unbelief, pride, and there's guilt. So what are the positive responses to the good news? What are the positive things? Number one is receive the message. In verse one it says, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. They received it. John 1.12 says, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave right to become children of God. Receive the message. Open, open, say, I'm, I'm gonna receive the message. Number two is believe the message. He says, you've taken your stand, which it means you've based your faith on. You will stake your life on this truth. Staking your life on this truth. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. By this gospel, you are saved. By this good news, you are saved. And number three is to confess. Confess means basically to agree with God and, and make a verbal profession of faith. God, I, I confess. I've done this, this, and this, and I, I can't do it on my own. I can't make myself right before you. That's confessing. And Romans 10.10 says, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Confession, confessing that. 
a profession of faith. And number four, be saved. Be saved. Be, be, be born again. Be born again. Become a, a new creation. In John 3, there's a man, a very religious man, that came to Jesus at night, and he said, I want to know what I must do to be saved, to have eternal life. And, and, and Jesus said, you have to be born again. He said, what does that mean? And he said, you have to be born of the Spirit. Being born of the Spirit is to, is to believe that Jesus is the Lord, that he died for our sins, believe the good news, receive the good news, and embrace the good news, and allow God to change our lives, to ask Jesus to forgive our sins, to come into our life, to take charge of our lives. And then we can be born again, spiritually born. This is an action that God takes on us. It's God's work, not ours. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not from, not from yourselves. It's a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast. The whole purpose of this good news was in that restoration of relationship to give us eternal life, life forever that begins now and goes on for eternity. And when it comes to our eternal destiny, there's no room for passivity. There's no room for neutrality. No decision is a no decision. The question is, how will you respond to this good news today? Let's pray. If we could just bow our heads for a moment. If you have never taken the step to ask Jesus for forgiveness and, and ask him to come into your life, I'm going to give you a chance to do that today. And I'm going to pray a prayer out loud, and if you want to pray it silently after me, then do that. Here's the prayer. Lord Jesus, I need you. I confess I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my life and take charge. Make me a new person. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer for the first time, every, every eye is closed and heads are bowed. If you prayed that for the first time, can you just slip your hand up real quick and put it back down? Anybody? Say, I pray, Pastor, I just prayed that prayer for the first time. Anybody? If you're not ready, and that's fine, I'd encourage you to go to our website, ecwesleyan.net backslash next, give some guidelines and talks about that. And if you want to, I would invite you to look at that on our website or talk to someone. Afterwards, we're going to have uh, a prayer team up here um, on your left, my right. 
And if you want to pray for something, you have a prayer request, you feel free to come up while we sing this last song. Let's all stand together, shall we, as we sing.